Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and we're continually in the temple blessing God. Lord, as we open these scriptures today to meditate on the ascension, I pray that you would lift our eyes upward to where you are and to where you, Lord Jesus, are even now. And I pray, um, honestly, that you would comfort us with the reality that you, Lord Jesus, are our priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and that that is a great promise and a great hope. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, you haven't seen me in a while, so my name's Chris Myers, and I'm one of the priests here. Um, Last Sunday was my first Sunday back from my leave of study, and... uh, yeah, it was a really great time. Um, it probably doesn't surprise any of you that I don't mind spending time by myself. So it was a good time, but I did take my own solitude to its outward limits. And there were times I would come home from writing all day and my wife would be like, you're really chatty. That's not normal. So it was a great time and I got a lot of work done and I'm in a good position to submit everything by the end of the summer. So that's great and I'm very grateful uh, for this community. First of all, for your support um, and your prayers for me and my family, and just the lift that I felt being sent out from this community to go do this work. Um, Scholarship can be pretty lonely, but I feel like I'm doing it in the midst of a community that loves me and that I missed dearly, worshiping with and being here. So thank you for all of that, and um, look forward to getting this darn thing turned in and really being done. So... Continued prayers for that. So this past Thursday, as I mentioned, is the actual uh, Feast of the Ascension, 40 days after Easter. Jesus rises from the dead, and for 40 days, he spends um, with his disciples, teaching them. And we caught a glimpse of what he was up to in our gospel reading, that he was teaching them about what it was that had happened. Um, People don't come back from the dead as a normal course of events. And the disciples' entire view of the world has been thrown into question because of this event. And Jesus spends these 40 days with them opening the scriptures and saying, hey, yes, this is unexpected, but it's all there. It's there in Moses. It's there in the prophets. It's there in the Psalms. And he taught them a way of looking at the scriptures to understand it in light of him, in light of what God had done in bringing Christ back from the dead. But it really seems like resurrection should be the end of the story. I mean, it's a great ending. 
If it all just ended right there, that would be awesome. And the disciples have some questions still. They have 40 days of seminary with Jesus, and they have some questions still. And that's where we pick up the story in the book of Acts. Because if God has done this amazing thing to bring life out of death, this thing that Israel anticipated God doing at the very end of history, when people would be raised from the dead, why is it that the story keeps going? I find it interesting that that's the disciples' question, because that's my question too. (laughs) Why are we still here? Why does our risen and ascended Lord tarry in returning? And those questions become even more acute, I think, when things are difficult, when we look around and all we see is division and violence and confusion. So the disciples' question here is my question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to end the story? Because it feels like you should. You had the great crescendo. You came back from the dead. That's a pretty good, pretty good trick, so let's just end it here. I love this question because the disciples are not asking from a place of doubt. They're asking from a position of faith. They call him Lord. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're asking out of their own expectation of their own understanding of the scriptures and what Jesus had opened to them over those 40 days. But Jesus, surprise, surprise, does not answer their question. Jesus does not seem to be in the business of answering questions directly. So if that's what you want out of Jesus, it's very disappointing. (laughs) He doesn't answer direct questions in direct ways. He says this, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. I'm gonna admit it and I'm gonna allow you to admit it. That is a deeply frustrating answer. Why not? Why don't you tell us? But the comfort in it, or at least maybe the lesson in it, is that we may not and maybe cannot find answers to the questions we are asking, but there's still hope to be found, even if the questions we have are not directly answered. The ascension can often be forgotten. It's kind of like the middle child between Easter and Pentecost. It's just a holding pattern. But the reality of the ascension is the reality that we live in now, is that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And we most often talk about that in terms of Jesus as king, that he ascends to a throne and that he's seated seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's exactly right. But it's also true that he's a priest. A king who is a priest. Psalm 110, our psalm for today. You'll find in the book of Acts and you'll find in the book of Hebrews and you'll find in the book throughout the New Testament that this was a go-to psalm for the apostles to explain what it was that God had accomplished in Jesus and who it is that Jesus is. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your footstool. That's kingly language. Conquering, thrones, very familiar. Jesus is a king. But then, 
he says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I want to talk about the priesthood of Jesus today in light of the ascension. There's deep comfort, I think, in the reality that Jesus is our great high priest. At least the church thought so. At least the New Testament thinks so. And maybe we can experience some of that comfort today. When we look and think about Jesus as ascended, we see that he is resurrected and glorious, but that he nevertheless ascends to the throne at the right hand of God as one who is still enfleshed and one who is still wounded. He's still in his body. That human flesh is what sits at the right hand of the Father. And that he bears the scars of his crucifixion. And that that enfleshment and that wounding bears witness to all that is human in the very presence of God. That's the hope of the ascension in light of Jesus' priesthood. What kind of priest is he? He's an enfleshed and wounded prince or priest, even all the while being resurrected and glorious. And the ascension is this promise that where he is gone, we will go to. That's what the angels tell the disciples. He's going to come back. We don't know when. It's been a long time. It is not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. But I want us, again, to consider Jesus as our ascended priest, as a priest who is in the order forever of Melchizedek. We have all kinds of images in Scripture of the ascent of a king. It's there in Psalm 110. It's all over the Old Testament. You ascend to a throne. That imagery is not just biblical imagery. It's, you know, it's the 70th, uh, it's, what is it, 70, uh, the Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II. She ascended to the throne about a long time ago, and they're celebrating it. We use ascent language for kings, but there are also images throughout Scripture of the ascent of a priest. Most powerfully, that of Moses going up Mount Sinai to intercede on behalf of the people of Israel. After the golden calf, after Israel has sinned greatly, Moses goes back up the mountain. He ascends the mountain for the purpose of standing as a mediator between God and the people. That is a priestly action. In the scriptures, the place of worship is always up. Eden is a temple garden placed on a mountain. It's up. And the Temple Mount, famously on Mount Zion, is up. The psalmist asks, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Him with clean hands and a pure heart. Jesus is the high priest who ascends by his sacrifice, moving into the very heart of reality to the place of intercession for us. The temple is up. It's a place to ascend to. The book of Hebrews tells us that our experience of earthly worship, even the temple, as grand and beautiful as it was, is just a shadowy picture of that place where our high priest is even now. Jesus ascended and entered this high and holy place into the heavens, into the very presence of God. So this is just more than a set of interesting images and literary connections throughout the Bible. Those are fun, 
especially for people like me. But they have a point. And the point is the reality that Jesus is our great high priest. So in light of the ascension, I want to ask, why do we need a great high priest? And why do we need a forever priest? One who does not die. One who is there forever. And I'm going to look at just three little sections of the book of Hebrews. I encourage you to go read that wonderfully baffling and awesome book in the New Testament. It's all about Jesus' priesthood. It's all about the ascension. It's all about how we run the race in light of that. Why do we need a forever priest? We need a forever priest who can sympathize with us. Hebrews 4, 4, 14 through 16. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The writer of the Hebrews tells us that there is comfort in the reality that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. He's enfleshed, he's wounded, even while he is resurrected and glorious. He takes human experience with him into the throne room of God. So he is able to sympathize with us, with our weaknesses, with our questions, with our doubts, with our temptations, with the ups and downs of human life. When we are rattled by events in our family, events in our country, events in our world, the writer of Hebrews says, even then we still draw with confidence to this sympathetic one, the enfleshed and wounded one who is glorious and resurrected. Great comfort, the writer of Hebrews says, in having someone who truly understands our condition sitting at the right hand of God. You want a mediator who knows your side of the story. If someone's making a case on your behalf, you want them to know what it's like. Not just the facts and details, but the actual embodied experience. That's our high priest. He sympathizes with our weakness. And yet he, though he was tempted, did not sin. So we don't just have a sympathetic high priest, we also have the sacrifice of a forever priest. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Why do we need a forever priest? <laughs> because as the writer of Hebrews is, uh, gleefully tells us over and over again, human priests just don't cut it. They sin. I'm wearing my priestly garments today. It's a reminder to myself that I'm just playing dress up. 
compared to the great high priest. <laughs> because whatever priesthood you have, you just have to keep doing it again and again. Jesus doesn't. It's once for all. He offered once for all a single sacrifice and then sat down. The contrast of the priest standing and Jesus sitting is very important because the sitting indicates that his work is finished. It's done. That sacrifice that brings us into the presence of God, that washes us clean, that perfects us, that sanctifies us, he's sitting right there, right by the right hand of the Father. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Him with clean hands and a pure heart. Well, how do we get clean hands and pure heart? How can we ascend to where he is if not through the full and perfect sacrifice that he has made? What I find interesting in these three verses is it perfectly captures the tension of our reality right now. Because on one hand, there is a full and perfect sacrifice that has been made. And indeed, that part of the story is over. That work is completed. We can rest in total confidence that his sacrifice is perfect and complete and brings us in the presence of God. But on the other hand, it says that we are waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool. This is a direct echo back to Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That means that though the decisive victory has been won, there are little skirmishes still happening. It means that evil still has some level of influence in the world. Paul talks about that, this as we live in the present evil age, even as the age of the new creation is overlapping with the present evil age and breaking in. Sometimes that tension feels intolerable when things get pulled, and it just seems like all there is is this present evil age. But that's why the ascension is in the creed, I think, because <laughs> we, <laughs> we have to remind ourselves that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We have to confess it because we don't always see it. And if you can't say it today, then maybe the person next to you can say it on your behalf. <laughs> And that's why we say it as a church. Because it's not always up to me to keep the whole faith. I need you to keep the faith too. When I have my own doubts. Yeah, I do. I have these clothes and I still have doubts. I have anger. I have confusion. I have lots of questions. We need a forever priest who sympathizes with us. We need a forever priest who has made a forever sacrifice. And both of those things come together for this reality, is that we need the intercession of a forever priest. Hebrews 7, 22 through 26. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, 
unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Now, if you don't take anything else from the words I'm saying today, at least know this, that the writer of the Hebrews thinks the ascension is pretty important, that it's not just a middle child between Easter and Pentecost, that it is the basis of our hope and confidence in a gracious and sympathetic Savior who makes intercession for us. These dopey priests, they are prevented by death from continuing in office. (laughs) But he holds his priesthood permanently. He will not die. He will not fail. He will continually intercede for us. Now, there is a deep mystery in this. I don't understand it. That Jesus prays for us that the Spirit prays within us when we don't know how to pray. But there's comfort in that. This idea that the Spirit can pray in us, grown inwardly when we don't know what to pray. This is a week I don't know what to pray. I don't know about you. It's hard. The Spirit prays in us and through us, and Jesus prays for us. Who is it that prays for us? One who is sympathetic with our weakness the enfleshed and wounded one who has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Who is it that intercedes for us? The one who is the perfect sacrifice who will bring us to the place where he is. That is the promise of the ascension. He will come again in the same way that he ascended. Meaning in glory and in power. Next week, we'll talk about Pentecost. Everything set up from this story for the reality of Pentecost, that what it means to be filled with the Spirit is to be sent, to be witnesses, to be empowered, to go and bear witness to this high priest. But for now, I think we just sit with the intercession, with the reality that when we don't know what to pray, he's praying for us. With the reality that our high priest, before he ascended anywhere, descended, that he took the form of a servant, that he emptied himself, that he died on a cross, that at that lowest point, Paul tells us in Philippians, is when God began to exalt him again. His sympathy with us is total. He knows. He knows the full extent of human experience. He's been to the outer reaches of the horrors that human beings can inflict on each other. It's part of what the cross is. What can humans do to each other a lot of horrible things. And yet Jesus endured it. Hebrews tells us that he endured it for the joy set before him, us. He despised the shame of it. And that he emerged from it holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and now he is exalted above the heavens. It is fitting that we should have such a high priest. It's a comfort that we have such a high priest, especially when those questions remain unanswered for us. I want to close with a short prayer, but I'm asking Becky, (coughs) excuse me, and the worship team to come up. I think the best way to respond is to sing. And I wanna sing together this song, Before the Throne of God Above, a song to and about our great high priest. And that will be our prayer, that will be our response.
And my prayer even now is, if you find yourself in a place where you don't know what to pray, take comfort in the fact that the Spirit groans within us unutterable words, and that the, the Son prays for us even now. Let's sing together. of the mercy and sympathy and intercession of our great high priest. May the peace of the Lord be always with you.